Well, that was the opening bird sounds from the movie The Birds, directed by Alfred Hitchcock and released in 1963. Yeah, there's no opening music. It's just the sound of lots and lots of birds. I, I read that they trained over 3,000 birds for the movie. I read that too, and also that the, uh, the uh, music was uh, assisted by some kind of electronic device, the name of which I can't remember right now, that added to the sound of the birds. And one of our favorite composers, Bernard Herrmann, was, uh, helped with that. I envisioned Bernard Herrmann working 12 months a year nonstop in one place or another. He's just... <laughs> Probably. He's, I mean, like, my goodness, the guy was in demand is an understatement. Yeah. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net and on Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews, and you can get access to some extra episodes and some behind-the-scenes stuff. It's, it's pretty fun over there, so check that out. And I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from what feels like September or October. It's been raining and cold here. And uh, this is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, where uh, we're having nice weather and uh, wanting to welcome everybody back to Classic Movie Reviews and The Birds. I, I love this movie, and uh, I got so into the background on it, I ordered the paperback, uh, The Apple Tree, which is, uh, The Birds is one of the short stories uh, by author, I, if I could have you pronounce her name, I, I won't mess it up. <laughs> Well, I think it's Daphne du Maurier, and she's a pretty prolific and famous and successful author. She wrote uh, Don't Look Now, which we both really enjoyed. It was so weird. Uh, and Rebecca, which I think we should review here in the near future. We, we indeed need to do that one. Um, but anyway, I'm getting a paperback version of it delivered tomorrow. I, I was reading about... Uh, the different adaptations of the birds, the, the movie, of course, being the one today that we're going to look at. But it's been on uh, various radio programs, and uh, the list is quite long, going back to the book. Uh, the book was published in 1952, and the first adaptation was on Lux Radio Theater in 1953, and then several other ones afterwards. And the BBC keeps re redoing versions of it. The most recent was that I found was in 2010. So oh, for cool. listeners that like the radio audio approach, there's uh, the Lux Radio Theater Escape in 1954. Oh, it was on it was on TV. Danger, a CBS program from 1955. I'm sure everyone's seen that. <laughs> and then yeah, it's in reruns constantly. Constantly, right? <laughs> just one I'd never heard of. And then the BBC has it on uh, their Radio Four. So it's quite a quite a uh, film, huh? Man. Yeah, I have to I have to apologize. I kind of made a little bit of fun of it in our last episode because the first time I watched it, I was pretty young and I and I I didn't have a very good memory of it in terms of any of the details. Uh, but watching it again now, I can certainly appreciate uh, how really excellent it actually is and how influential potentially it has been in the zombie uh, movie genre. 
I was I, I had this thought as it was coming to a close there at the end of the movie that gosh this this feels like a zombie movie I wonder if this inspired any any movies like Night of the Living Dead and I thought boy that'd be a great article I could write an article for our blog post about this you know and then I went out and did a quick search and it, that was not an original thought there's like 50 different articles about how the birds relates to zombie movies <laughs> so. there's so many different interpretations of why the birds behave the way they do. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know that there's 50, but there's a lot of different ones. When I saw it in 1963 as a college student, I just enjoyed it because it was so different. It was just, yeah. everything about it was, was, was quite unique. And uh, Hitchcock really went all out to get the special effects of the birds uh, incorporated. He used like three or four other studios Departments in different studios, like Disney was involved in some of the animation. Fox did some work on it, um, and one other that I've forgotten now. So he knew he needed some expertise to make it look real, and uh, it does, I tell you. That scene when they're all running down the hill from the school. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's good. It was a combination of, like, it looked like some animation and... And some puppetry work, and yeah, it was it was really it was tense. I you know it's it's just one of those movies that when you think about like a a flock of birds attacking you, how, like how terrifying could that be? You know, like it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like it would be that terrifying until you actually see it on screen, and then you think, oh, these birds can be vicious, especially like seagulls and the ravens, the ravens. Uh, or the crows. Yeah, we have a group those, of crows. Their beaks in our... were so sharp. We have a group of crows in our neighborhood now. I look at them suspiciously. I'm thinking <laughs> they're plotting. What, what are they thinking? Uh, well, plus there's the backstory uh, to the whole film uh, that involves Hitchcock and and Tippy Hedren and uh, his behavior toward her. That that oh really? That I didn't could hear be about a, that. That could be a movie in itself in terms of how he was infatuated with her and tried to isolate her from the rest of the crew and. There's a whole number. There's a number of articles on that. Uh, Nancy wasn't too familiar with the birds, but she she was uh, more familiar with the backstory and how he treated her uh, in, uh, during the filming. Uh, she went on to make a second film with him called Marnie, and I I don't know how that one went. I I didn't I didn't pursue it any further. But there's so much. There's so many layers to this film. Uh, it's it's going to be hard to cover just the plot without drifting all over the place. Yeah, I like the little seaside town that they filmed in, too. It was apparently known to be haunted. Bodega Bay, it's there on the map. Yeah, I've never been there, but uh, I don't plan to go anytime soon either. <laughs> it's rich. One of my one of my favorite scenes is when she's uh, driving, and, and by she I mean uh, Tippi Hedren's character, Melanie Daniels, and she's headed up the coast to, to go visit mitch brenner played by rod taylor and she's driving that little sports car uh convertible yes. along the 101 there beautiful that was car. so cool and yeah. those and the two lovebirds there's a scene of them they sway with the with the road <laughs> <laughs> yeah that looked a little fake but i, I appreciated the, the the humor there oh <laughs> uh, let's see uh well alfred hitchcock I, we don't need to say too much about his background i guess we've done that already um but T Tippi Hedren, this was her, I believe this was her first uh, film. 
And she, oh, really? Since that time, I think she's made 80 films and TV shows. I think it was her first. Then um, Rod Taylor. Every time I see him, I, I enjoy his performance. I know we, we talked about the time machine, but he's in one where he plays a German an officer called 36 Hours, and they're trying to trick James Garner into giving away some of the secrets for the D-Day landing. And I like it as, as much because uh, my friend... John has a small part in it as a German oh, cool. radio operator. <laughs> uh, and then Jessica Tandy, my goodness. She uh, she did over 100 stage plays. Wow. That's amazing. And uh, was she, she won Academy Awards for Driving Miss Daisy and for Fried Green Tomatoes. Yeah, both, both really good movies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you remember probably the first time I remember seeing her would be in Driving Miss Daisy. Although no, she was in Cocoon: The Return, and Cocoon. Uh, yeah, she was. In, I do yeah. remember that movie. That was a fun movie too. She was in so many films, and then Veronica Cartwright plays the young uh, sister to Rod Taylor's character. Remember her in Alien? Okay, so I have a question for you: Is does Veronica Cartwright have a meltdown and scream and cry in every one of her movies? <laughs> well, let's see. She's been in the business six decades. That's a lot of... I don't know. She was... No, I'm just kidding. It's just that she she looks so young. She was so young in this movie. And, and then I thought oh, she was an alien and she was having that major meltdown in Alien. And then she was also in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, yeah. And she had that meltdown at the end of the movie, and I thought, oh, poor Veronica Cartwright. <laughs> well, I could understand where she might have a, a meltdown in Alien. I mean, or, that was being trapped with the, the devil. <laughs> yeah, or this movie. I mean, it was all, yeah, part of her character. She was in a film where I, I believe she did not have a meltdown. I'm not sure. The Right Stuff from 1983, she plays the wife of Gus Grissom. Mr. Grissom oh, yeah. uh, died tragically in a fire in the capsule. Now I don't know that she had a meltdown on that or not, but we could do a we could do a special research on that. <laughs> Try to correlate. She's done a lot of, of movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then Suzanne Plachette. I I remember her from the Bob Newhart show from the 1970s. She was yeah, Bob I Newhart's wife. Her. <clears throat> I didn't remember her from that, but I looked her up and I thought, oh, that's why she looks familiar because we used to watch that show a lot when I was little. It would come on TV and you get you you and you would put it on and we'd watch it. If I watched it today, I'd laugh just as hard at his character as, as, as ever. <laughs> it was the bumbling psychologist. Where to begin? I guess we should begin with the story, huh? Yeah, the movie starts out in San Francisco and uh, we, we meet... Uh, Tippy Hedren's character and she's there to buy some birds at a bird shop and I love the I love those street scenes in these old movies you get to see the old street signs and the old cars and and the buildings and and it was it was it was kind of cool because they did this swipe uh, of a sign and you could tell or at least I could tell that they went from outdoor s filming to a set and then we're outside of the um the little bird shop there and then alfred hitchcock walks out with his two dogs <laughs> yeah apparently those were those were his dogs he was the guardian owner of of those two dogs i, I read their name somewhere but i've lost that along the way but you know in the in the opening scenes with rod taylor and tippy hedron 
they are both really kind of uh, full of themselves. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of deserve each other, really. Yeah. I mean, they're well. One of the one of the theories uh, for the bird attack is that the birds were tired of people like that, and they wanted to teach them a lesson. And I don't know how the birds were perceptive enough to pick that up, but. That was one of the tracks that I read. You'd have to assume that they were all communicating with each other somehow. Constantly. But it was it was kind of funny how Tippy Hedren pretended to, to work in the shop, even though uh, Rod Taylor's character, Mitch Brenner, knew that she didn't work there. I wonder if you could help me. What? I said, I wonder if you could help me. Yes, what is it you're looking for, sir? Lovebirds. Lovebirds, sir? Yes, I understand there are different varieties. Is that true? Oh, yes, there are. Well, uh, these are for my sister for her birthday, you see, and uh, as she's only going to be 11, I, I wouldn't want a pair of birds that were too demonstrative. I understand completely. Uh, at the same time, I wouldn't want them to be too aloof, either. No, of course not. Do you happen to have a pair of birds that are this friendly? Oh, I think so. Now then, let me see. Aren't those lovebirds? No, those are uh, redbirds. Oh, I thought they were strawberry finches. Oh, yes, we call them that, too. Here we are, lovebirds. Those canaries. Doesn't this make you feel awful? Doesn't what make me? Having all these poor little innocent creatures caged up like this. Well, we can't just let them fly around the shop, you know. <laughs> no, I suppose not. Is there an ornithological reason for keeping them in separate cages? Well, certainly. It's to protect the species. Yes, I suppose that's important. Especially during the molting season. It's a particularly dangerous time. Are they molting now? Some of them are. How can you tell? Well, they... Get a sort of hang dog expression. Yes, I see. Well, what about the lovebirds? Are you sure you wouldn't like to see a canary instead? We have some very nice canaries this week. All right. All right, may I see it, please? Cage, Melanie Daniels. What did you say? I was merely drawing a parallel, Miss Daniels. How did you know my name? A little birdie told me. Good day, Miss Daniels. Madam? Hey, wait a minute. I don't know you. Ah, uh, but I know you. How? We met in court. We never met in court or any place else. Uh, that's true. I'll rephrase it. I saw you in court. When? Don't you remember one of your practical jokes that resulted in the smashing of a plate glass window? I didn't break that window. Yes, but your little prank did. Judge should have put you behind bars. What are you, a policeman? I merely believe in the law, Miss Daniels. 
I'm not too keen on practical jokers. Well, what do you call your lovebird story, if not... Oh, I really wanted the lovebird. Well, you knew I didn't work here. You deliberately... Right. I recognized you when I came in. I just thought you might like to know what it's like to be on the other end of a gag. What do you think of that? I think you're a louse. I am. Good day, Miss Daniel. Madam. And I'm glad you didn't get your lovebirds. Oh, I'll find something else. See you in court. And it was... <laughs> but then she decides that she's gonna uh, get a couple lovebirds and drive them up to where he spends his weekends up at Bodega Bay because he was actually there to buy lovebirds for his sister who's having a birthday that weekend. And so she decides that, huh, she's kind of intrigued by Mitch. She likes it when guys treat her like that, I guess. I, I don't, don't know. know. But she goes all out to find his address. She calls her father's newspaper and the strong arms or coerces one of the staff members to find out where this guy lives. Yeah, that seemed a little shady. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and then the guy that lives in the apartment building where he lives just tells her, oh yeah, he's in Bodega Bay. He goes there every weekend. Miss, is that for Mitch Brenner? Yes. He's not home. Oh, that's all right. Uh, he won't be back until Monday. I mean, if those birds are for him. Monday? Yes. I don't think you should leave them in the hall, do you? Well, where did he go? Bodega Bay. He goes there every weekend. Bodega Bay? Where's that? Up the coast, about 60 miles north of here. 60 miles? Oh. It's an hour and a half by freeway, or two hours if you take the coast highway. Oh. I'd look after them myself, but I'm going away, too. I'm awfully sorry. It's like... Gee, thanks. Thanks for just letting everybody know that I'm not home on the weekends. <laughs> yeah, she, he doesn't know this person at all. That guy looked familiar to me. He was on a lot of television shows. Uh, I think he was on the Dick Van Dyke show as one of the staff members or the boss. I forget. He was quite uh, sophisticated in this in his scenes, except for giving away, except for giving away all the secrets about where. Mitch was uh, spending the weekends. <laughs> What's his name again? Yeah. What was his... Uh, his name is Richard Deacon, and he was in a lot of like 70s and 80s TV shows. Oh, there he is. Yeah, I, I lost him on my list. And didn't you love Charles McGraw? I know I'm jumping ahead, but there was Charles McGraw, our favorite cop from Narrow Margin, in, oh, the, yeah. in the restaurant, yeah. and, and he was the fish. He had a fishing fleet that had been attacked by the birds. He looked out like a tough guy every time I saw him in any film. Yeah, he really did. <laughs> if I saw him coming down the sidewalk, I think I'd cross the street. He would have fit into uh, our next movie, Jaws. You know, he could. <laughs> oh yeah, he could have played the Robert Shaw character. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Interchangeable parts. So anyway, she she goes up Highway One. We're back to Tippy. She's whipping up. Was that an Austin Healy or? I think it was an Austin Healy, as best I could yeah, tell. Yeah, beautiful car. I wanted to buy one of those when I was in college. Until I found out what they cost, it was like I'd have had to. Well, not only what they cost, but what they cost to maintain. Oh, I know. <laughs> there was one for sale but, yeah. that was used, and I thought, well, I get for that. Oh, it, it would have been awesome, especially if you could have kept it in good shape. Oh, it would be classic. I would have gone bankrupt as a junior in college. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but well, not very practical. Well, I remember you always wanted to get a Triumph. Oh, I still, you know? still do. Actually, uh, uh, Jade and I have been thinking about getting a Triumph Spitfire and restoring it. Oh my um, word! You can get a you can get a running one for about fifteen hundred dollars U.S. Uh, and then, of course, it's going to need quite a bit of work, but it'd be pretty fun, I think. It'd be a fun summer. Well, before the whole pandemic happened and everything, our plan was to do that this summer, uh, but that kind of put a damper on doing anything extravagant like that. You were, you were going to do that with Jaden? Yeah, we were going to get a like a a running, but uh, you know, one that yeah. needs a, like a project car, uh, and then and then learn how to you know do all the restoration on it. I'm fast forwarding now to next summer and I come up to visit and you and Jaden are over at the Chevron station that uh, Barry owns and you've got one of the bays and you got the car completely disassembled and you're <laughs> re- you're rebuilding the engine. Yeah, totally. And totally. Barry Barry That's has to the order these parts from some obscure plant in I don't know where. I don't know where they make the parts for that anymore. Well, this is a real tangent, but actually, uh, <laughs> parts for a Triumph Spitfire are you can buy. They're so cheap and plentiful. Um, there's a lot of really. Uh, there's oh. a lot of uh, part manufacturers that still make parts that fit for that car. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, one, one more. So si- one she more drives s- into. Well, I was going to say one more oh. side trip. I, I bought okay. a I bought a used 1953 Cadillac a long time ago, and. It needed a lot of work, and the guy that was helping with it found a bumper, an original, no, not a bumper, an original windshield in a Cadillac dealer in Texas for a 1953 Cadillac, and this was like in the mid 80s. Now, there's an inventory. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Enough, I guess. Anyway, she's <laughs> she's headed to Bodega Bay. And she gets there, and she goes into this little, like, uh, shop that's kind of a five and dime store or something um and is looking for mitch and the people that work there say that uh yeah he lives over on this uh, the other side of the bay and and his 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 uh and she wants to know what his uh, sister's name is and they, they they don't they can't figure it out so they say well you should go talk to the school teacher so she's on this little like detective mission to go find out the name of mitch's uh, sister who's played by Veronica Cartwright and her name is Kathy but I think one of them says it's I wonder if you can tell me hey, uh, uh, just hold it a minute please the, the little girl's name little Brenner girl yes uh, Alice I think Harry what's the little Brenner girl's name Lois Alice ain't it no it's Lois it's Alice why are you sure well, I'm not positive if that's what you mean. Well, I need her exact name, you see. Oh, uh, just hold on one more minute, please. In that case, I'll tell you what you do. You go straight through town till you see a little hotel on your left. Then you turn right there. Now, you got that? Yes. Near the top of the hill, you'll see the school, and just beyond a little house with a red mailbox. That's where Annie Hayworth, the school teacher, lives. You ask her about the little Brenner girl. Well, thank you. Save yourself a lot of trouble. Name's Alice, for sure. Can I have the boat in about 20 minutes? How much for the phone calls? Oh, it's nothing. Thank you. Yeah, they, they're all over the place. I, I, I thought to myself as this pro- progressed that uh, 
that uh, Melanie was stalking Mitch, almost, you know, in, to- oh, totally. in today's world. Well, not only that, but then when she does, she meets up with Suzanne, Suzanne Plachette, who plays Annie Hayworth as the school teacher, and and yeah, Annie Hayworth says, "Oh yeah, her name is Kathy," and you know, gives her a bunch of information, and and then she she actually rents a boat and takes a boat across the bay, and then sneaks in to Mitch's house when yeah. he's not there because he's he's out in the barn or something, and leaves the lovebirds with a. I don't. She didn't leave the note though, right? She well, she, 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 she wrote a note to him. She had a letter to him, but she tore that up and she she instead put a card to Kathy, or the, to the to his uh, sister for her birthday. That's every, right. every That's time right. every time we uh, saw his sister, I had to do math to make sure that he and she could actually be brother or sister because there was such a gap in their ages. And I worked it out. It it would work. With well, how mother. old do you think he was in the movie? Like about 32, 33, something like that, and she was fourteen. And she was fourteen, so so it yeah. worked. It worked. I, mean, I could see that. Yeah, but I had to pencil it out on a sheet of paper to make sure. <laughs> but it, it 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 does it does set up kind of a weird thing with his mom, though, because played oh, by Jessica Tandy. Definitely. And. You know, there's this 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 whole sort of like subplot of the fact that Annie Hayworth was going out with Mitch Brenner for a while, but it didn't work out because his mom, Linda Brenner, had had some issues, and Annie warns Melanie, you know, look out because the mom has got some issues, and it, 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 yeah, it was it was kind of strange. It, Where are you from originally, Annie? San Francisco. How did you happen to come up here? Oh, a friend invited me up for a weekend a long time ago. Look, I see no reason for being coy about this. It was Mitch Brenner. I guess you knew that anyway. I always suspected as much. Well, you needn't worry. It's been over and done with a long time ago. Annie, there's nothing between Mr. Brenner and me. Isn't there? Well, maybe there isn't. Maybe there's never been anything between Mitch and any girl. What do you mean? I think I'll have some of that. I was seeing a lot of him in San Francisco. Then one weekend, he invited me up to meet Lydia. When was this? Oh, four years ago. Shortly after his father died. Of course, things may be different now. Different? With Lydia. Did she seem a trifle distant? A trifle. Well, then perhaps things aren't quite so different. You know, her attitude nearly drove me crazy. When I got back to San Francisco, I spent days trying to figure out exactly what I'd done to displease her. What had you done? Nothing. I simply existed. So what's the answer? Jealous woman, right? Clinging, possessive mother? Wrong. With all due respect to Oedipus, I don't think that was the case. Well, what was it? Lydia liked me. That's the strange part. Now that I'm no longer a threat, we're very good friends. Why did she object to you? Because she was afraid. Afraid you'd take Mitch? Afraid I'd give Mitch. I don't understand. Afraid of any woman who would give Mitch the one thing Lydia can give him? Love. That adds up to a jealous, possessive woman. No, I don't think so. You see, she's not afraid of losing Mitch. She's only afraid of being abandoned. 
Someone ought to tell her she'd be gaining a daughter. <laughs> no, she already has a daughter. Well, what about Mitch? Didn't he have anything to say about this? Well, I can understand his position. He'd just been through a lot with Lydia after his father died. He didn't want to risk going through it all again. Oh, I see. So it ended. And not right then, of course. We went back to San Francisco, saw each other now and then, but we both knew it was over. Then what are you doing here in Bodega Bay? I wanted to be near Mitch. Oh, it was over and done with, and I knew it, but I still wanted to be near him. You see, I still like him a hell of a lot. And I don't want to lose that friendship. Ever. Is that is that kind of a Hitchcock thing? Like, it kind of reminds me of Psycho a little bit. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that. In the movies of his that I like the best, I haven't picked up on that. I think that's I think that's just a coincidence. Because it turns out, actually, that she's she's a pretty good mom and she she actually does is is looking out for mitch's best interest it's just that she's a little overbearing yeah and and into control yeah but but uh but uh melanie drops them off and then she goes out into the water of the bay in the boat obviously and waits to see his reaction when he goes in the house then we have a race across the bay with her in the boat and he gets in his truck i think or car yeah, because he spies her through his binoculars, and and he's kind of like ruefully smiling, like "Aha, I've got you!" And then she she's yeah racing across the bay, and then as she is almost near shore, out of nowhere, a seagull comes down and like bites her in the head and attacks her. You know, the first hour of the film, because I was kind of watching the time on it, there's not a lot of. It really takes a long time to build up to the first climatic, to the first scene of the seagull flying down and, and nipping her. There's a lot of buildup and foreshadowing and all that. Yeah, I think it's, I think that's really important because yes. it sets it up so you care about the characters and it makes, because really the, to me, and I, it's just jumping ahead a little bit, I it's, it, it the movie almost becomes like a base under siege kind of movie when they're in the house and they're being attacked by the the birds and the fact that you kind of have gotten to know the characters and you, you 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 kind of empathize with them more because we've spent the first hour just getting to know them makes that last like 15 20 minutes of the movie so much more powerful it's well done in that regard i i also wondered if mitch had a lot of different women that came up from san francisco to spy on him he seemed kind of i don't know cavalier or nonchalant about it he he, he, he like Oh, it's no big deal. I'm glad you're here. Well, I think he, I think he, I think he definitely had quite a few women friends, at least in San Francisco. I don't know how many of them drove up to spy on him and break into his house, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then they, uh, they, after that, I think they go into the little cafe and they get some help because she's bleeding. Yes. And then, then that's when the sea captain comes in, the fisherman comes in and is saying, my, my boat got attacked as well. Does he come in then, or is it later after the birds attack all the kids in the school? I, I, don't, I, don't, yeah, I don't think we've yet gotten to that level of, of uh, bird attacks. I think she gets some treatment from one of the waitresses and the guy that's the owner, I think. 
And, oh right, and, and then I think they, and then she goes back out to um, visit Anne, Annie, and asks if uh, she can rent the room for a yeah. night because she has no place to stay. And and we're building more and more toward the uh, toward the climatic scenes. And then she goes out to have dinner at the Brenner's house because when Mitch was kind of fixing her up, he invited her out to dinner, and this is a surprise to to Linda, to Lydia. Sorry, Lydia Brenner. I think I said Linda earlier. Lydia Brenner played by Jessica Tandy and she's she's not all that pleased with having guests over no especially an attractive woman that she doesn't know anything about and I don't know if we've, we started to have the backstory of how Mitch and Annie Hayworth had been uh, romantically involved in, and that broke up because I guess the mother just uh, wanted to kind of keep him separate because she was afraid he might somehow leave I think she's very because her husband had died about four years before, and uh, I think she was still kind of going over, getting out of, the, or going, working through that, <clears throat> and she didn't want yeah, him they, to leave. Well, after dinner, they have that conversation outside the house when uh, when Melanie's in the car, and they they sort of like exchange words. It's kind of like a little, it's like a little duel of words between the two of them. And, and neither one of them, they're both really strong headed. So neither one of them backs down. Will I be seeing you again? San Francisco's a long way from here. Oh, in San Francisco five days a week with a lot of time on my hands. I'd like to see you. Maybe we could go swimming or something. Mother tells me you like to swim. How does mother know what I like to do? I guess we read the same gossip columns. Oh, that, Rome. Yeah, I really like to swim. I think we might get along very in well. In case you're interested, I was pushed into that fountain. Without any clothes on? With all my clothes on. The newspaper that ran that story happens to be a rival of my father's paper. You're just a poor, innocent victim of circumstances, huh? Well, I'm neither poor nor innocent, but the truth of that particular... Truth is, you're running around with a pretty wild crowd, isn't it? Well, yes, that's the truth, but I was pushed into that fountain, and that's the truth, too. Uh-huh. Do you really know Annie Hayworth? No. At least I didn't until I came up here. So you didn't go to school again? No. And you didn't come up here to see her? No. You were lying. Yes, I was lying. What about the letter you wrote me? Is that a lie, too? Yeah, I wrote the letter. Well, what did it say? It said, Dear Mr. Brenner, I think you need these lovebirds after all. They may help your personality. That's what it said. But you tore it up? Yes. Why? Because it seemed stupid and foolish. Like jumping into a fountain in Rome. I told you what happened. You don't expect me to believe that. Oh, do I don't give a damn what you believe. I'd still like to see you. Why? I think it might be fun. Well, that might have been good enough in Rome, but it's not good enough now. It is for me. Well, not for me. What do you want? I thought you knew. I want to go through life jumping into fountains naked. Good night. And then she heads back to hang out with, with Annie, and that's when Annie talks about her past with Mitch. And then... She and then Melanie asks Annie, "Do you think I should go to Kathy's birthday party? Because that's what that's kind of why she was going to spend the night to maybe go to this birthday party the next day, right?" Yes, yeah, and and uh, she decides she will go. And uh, the party is outside the house of the uh, of the uh, Kathy Brenner character. No, I'm sorry. Uh, Lydia's house, the Brenner's house, and they have a. Jeez, uh, uh, I'm, I'm I'm losing my place here. Tippy and Rod 
have a discussion about Tippy's background and how her father or mother had left and all the trauma that she'd gone through and the difficulty that that's another great interaction between the two of them. I, I really like that scene when they're they're just after dinner outside the house, and then that scene when they kind of take a walk during the birthday party. Oh, I really shouldn't have any more. I'm driving. Well, actually, I'm trying to get you to stay for dinner. A lot of roast beef left over. No, I couldn't possibly. I have to get back. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Seriously, why do you have to rush off? What's so important in San Francisco? Well, I have to get to work tomorrow morning, for one thing. You have a job? I have several jobs. What do you do? Well, I do different things on different days. Like what? Well, on Mondays and Wednesdays, I work for the Traveler's Aid at the airport. Helping travelers? No, misdirecting them. I thought you could read my character. On Tuesdays, I take a course in general semantics at Berkeley. Finding new four-letter words. That's not a job, of course, but... You mean you don't have to... And on Thursdays, I have my meeting and lunch. In the underworld, I suppose. I shall disappoint you. We're sending a little Korean boy through school. We actually raise money for it. You see, Rome... That entire summer, I did nothing but... Well, it was very easy to get lost there. So when I came back, I thought it was time I began, oh, I don't know, finding something again. So on Mondays and Thursdays, I keep myself busy. What about Fridays? Fridays, they're free. I sometimes go to bird shops on Fridays. I'm very glad you do. Nice, innocent little day. Oh, yes. I have an Aunt Tessa. Have you got an Aunt Tessa? Mm. Mine is very prim and straight-laced. I'm giving her a minor bird when she comes back from Europe. Minor birds talk, you know. Can you see my Aunt Tessa's face when this one tells us one or two of the words I've picked up at Berkeley? You need a mother's care, my child. Not my mother's. Oh, I'm sorry. What have you got to be sorry about? My mother, don't waste your time. She ditched us when I was 11 and ran off with some hotel man in the East. You know what a mother's love is. Yes, I do. You mean it's better to be ditched? No, I think it's better to be loved. Don't you ever see her? I don't know where she is. Well, maybe I ought to go join the other children. They have great chemistry, and I really like. I really like Rod Taylor. And I do acting. too. Yeah, I do too. I, I, everything he was in, I enjoyed. Remember, in uh, have you seen Inglorious? bastards the the no uh, i haven't seen that yet he plays winston churchill in that oh gosh <laughs> so he was acting i don't know way up into the let's see into the uh, tooth into the 21st century yeah 
But, you know, in, in today's movie making, you wouldn't see the transition from being out of doors to on the set like you do in this. It's, I guess because I've watched so many of these now, I can kind of tell it's well done. Yeah, that was a little jarring. I didn't understand why. I think, I mean, clearly they did that so they could control the lighting and yeah. the wind and everything for that for that face-to-face interaction. But they had that beautiful outdoor scene, and it, and it looked like there was a spot where they could have filmed right there, but... And then they come. They come from the studio back to the, uh, the real, the real world. Yeah, and then that's when they get the we get the first really big bird attack at the birthday party. Man, that is scary, the way that's done, and the way those little kids and, get attacked. Jeez. Yeah, when they, and 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 it starts to make it does start to get more terrifying when you see like these little kids getting tripped up because they're running and they fall and then birds just descend on them and start pecking at them, and you think, oh god, that would be pretty horrible and and painful and potentially deadly, right? If they if they kept at it. So, so they they get it under control, or so they think. And and things settle down a bit, and the kids go home and. Uh, Melanie decides to stay because there's been a lot going on there. And they're in the house, and then all the sparrows come in through the chimney. That was so freaky. Wow. I had forgotten that that from earlier. That was masterfully put together. It looks so real. Like, that that was some great special effects. And man, and it it was all sparrows. It reminded me of a scene... It reminded me of a scene in Harry Potter when all the envelopes come flying out of the of the fireplace with uh, Harry's invitation to Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, re- it reminded me of a completely different frame reference, Pitch Black. Oh, yeah. And those yeah. flying birds, whatever they were, in that Vin Diesel movie. Yeah, and they that's just right. They just were unrelenting, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, it shows up at least in my mind, in a lot of films that are current. So they get that under uh, control. So things uh, are starting to show up more frequently, though, because now there's other attacks. I think they go out and listen on the radio of their car. or They somehow get some news that there have been other attacks around the area and over uh, even uh, across the mountain range in some of the other cities. And so so uh, Lydia wants Melanie to go pick up Kathy from school because she would just feel a lot better if Kathy was home. So she goes out to the school and as she's going out to the school, she notices that there's like a flock of ravens kind of landing on the playground and there's more and more oh, and I more know. of them as she's sitting there. She does it. It's, it's beautifully done because she's not aware that they're congregating. She's, she's, I think smoking a cigarette or looking off in the distance yeah, and, and then and then she and by the time she notices, it's like there's like a couple hundred of them out there. And then she has to go in and and tell Annie's character that they need to leave as quietly as possible. So far, so good, right? Yeah, until they actually get outside. And then they're yeah. out in the open, and all hell breaks loose. Oh my goodness! They come down that hill. It seemed like it was five miles to the downtown. I think it's, I just, I'm just thinking about this now. The first two big bird attacks are on kids. You know, there's the birthday party and then there's that scene where they're running down the hill trying to escape from the school. And I I actually think that that makes a lot of sense from a dramatic standpoint 
you could you could feel a lot more terrified and empathetic toward these little kids that are being attacked by these birds uh and i think it sets it up it like slowly is ratcheting up the tension with yes these, with these attacks yep and and uh, it, it's it's getting close to the culmination of that. They 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 safely get the kids dispersed, and uh, when they take shelter in that car, you think that's going to help. But then they have to, don't they run the car down the hill? They they get into the restaurant. I can't remember now how that happens. Yeah, they're they? in the restaurant, and then they're making some phone calls. I think to try to. Yeah, I think she calls her dad or something, like the newspaper, to to say to tell yeah. them what's going on. And then there's that that old lady in the in the restaurant who's a, who's like the curmudgeon of the. She's sort of, I think, the um, Mrs. Bundy, like us in the audience saying, "Well, like this isn't realistic. Like this couldn't happen. Like these are birds. Like what birds aren't going to attack like this." And then there's that guy at the end of the bar. Yeah. All right. Yes. Goodbye. They are both perching birds, of course, but quite different species. The crow is Corvus bracorhynchos, and the blackbird is Euphagus cyanocephagus. Thank you. Do you have the number at the faucet farm? Yeah. Right here in this book, miss. Look, I can't see that it makes any difference, Mrs. Bundy. Crows or blackbirds, if the school was attacked, that's pretty serious. I hardly think that either species would have sufficient intelligence to launch a massed attack. <laughs> their brain pans are not big enough to be. I just came from the school, madam. I don't know anything about their brain pans, but... Well, I do. I do know. Ornithology happens to be my avocation. Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. It is mankind's Sam, right. three southern fried chicken. Baked potato on all of them. Yes, may I speak to Mitch Brenner, please? Yes, I'll wait. It is mankind, rather who insists upon making it difficult for life to exist upon this planet. Now, if it were not for Mrs. birds... Bundy, you... you don't seem to understand. This young lady said there was an attack on the school. Impossible. Oh, Mitch? Oh, I'm glad I caught you. Something terrible is... It's the end of the world! Two Bloody Marys, Deke. What actually happened at the school? A bunch of crows attacked the school kids. It's the end of the world. Well, I think what's interesting, I, I, was, I was doing a little bit more reading about the movie and and mrs bundy's so vocal about how it's impossible for birds to attack like this and then a little bit later after that there's that big calamity with the car running into the um oh, gas God. station and the fire and all that stuff oh. she's completely silent like she's she's in the back of the shot you can barely see her and she's like nope this is real, you know, it's like, it just, it just, you almost identify with her when she first starts talking because you're sort of thinking the same thing as an audience member. But then after all this stuff goes down, that just kind of gets pushed to the side. And, and it's, it's, it's literally pushed to the side in the movie with her being in the back of the shot, not saying anything. And that's the genius of, I think that's the genius of Hitchcock. Like that's the kind of thing that he does that just adds to the overall impact of the film. The uh, the scene where they have that gasoline running down and then that car explosion, and then he Hitchcock takes it to an aerial view, and you can see the whole downtown with that fire spreading. That was another masterful touch. 
I don't remember which movie. It might have been Twenty Eight Days Later, or it was a late. It was a later zombie movie, like in the two thousands, I think. But they, it starts off kind of like that, where it's kind of a normal day in the neighborhood, and then all this news starts happening, and the family gets in the car and they start to drive off, and then the camera pulls back, and you see like these explosions in the background, and it it just really this shot of of when he pulls up to that aerial view really reminded me of some later films in the zombie genre where yeah. You, you, you start tight and you kind of start at that individual level and then you pull back and you just see the chaos that's going on around them. And so cool. That scene where uh, uh, Melanie uh, is trapped in the telephone booth. Oh, yeah. Wow. That was intense and unrelenting. And the birds kept pecking and hitting the glass and breaking the glass. And finally, uh, Rod Taylor's character rescues her and gets her back inside the restaurant, I believe. And then there's that one woman who's... Who was that? Was that Ruth Mc, McDevitt? She was very, very upset. Why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? They said when you got here, the whole thing started. Who are you? What are you? Where did you come from? I think you're the cause of all this. I think you're evil! Evil! I think they're going. We can get Kathy at Annie's now. Yeah, she was blaming Melanie for the bird attack, saying that, that they didn't start happening until she came into town. And that was a nice little like callback to the witch the witchcraft sort of like witch trials of like yeah. something that happened that's unexplained. So let's just pick somebody and blame them for it and then persecute them for it. And I think Melanie slaps her in the face or something to bring her around and then she's ashamed because she realizes what she's done. Oh, they go back up to Annie's house, I think. Yeah. Annie has been killed by the birds trying to defend off the birds at her house. I think were they going back up to the house to get her to get to get Annie maybe yeah and, and then and they get up there and they realize that she's been killed so then they head back out to Mitch's house and Kathy was in the house and they rescue Kathy and then they all head over to the Brenner farm the last 20 minutes of the film there's not a lot of dialogue it's really it's really sort of Mitch going around the house boarding up the windows boarding up the fireplace making sure that everything is battened down and they're kind of just waiting to see what happens because there's all these birds out but they're they're just they're just sitting around they're not doing much um they seem to be waiting for instructions from somewhere yeah i love these kinds of movies where um it's the base under siege and and how he's going around checking all the windows. And then there's always one window or door that doesn't quite get checked yes. enough, you know? <laughs> I, I think we also miss the fact that uh, Lydia Brenner goes to the farmhouse, next, the next neighbor's farmhouse. Oh, yeah. How and discovers that? Yeah. discovers that the owner of that has been killed by the birds. And they they have this, throughout the film, they have this reoccurring problem trying to get the authorities in in the uh, person of the deputy sheriff Al Malone 
to to believe that it was done by birds. I mean, everybody's in disbelief, but they're going to find out this is for real when uh, now now we're back to the farmhouse and they're shut up in there. But the attacks are going on all across the region. We pick up some of that. Yeah, I think I thought about that too. How the sheriff is sort of disbelieving, and and it it does feel a little bit like a trope where there's the disbelieving you know law enforcement officer. Even though there's a like ample evidence that that something weird's going on, and I you know co- contrast that to Jaws, where um, the sheriff played by Rod Roy Scheider, Roy, Roy Scheider, Scheider yeah. sorry. So in Jaws, where we've got the the sheriff played by Roy Scheider, who's sort of the main character, he he believes like he's 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 more on the side of like I believe that there was a shark attack. But he's bullied into kind of going along with like the powers that be in the town. Yeah, the the, so uh, it's a, it's, it's, the mayor is the the, the mayor is the uh, disbeliever, or doesn't want to have it interfere with the economy. Yeah, so it seems like there's there's always got to be that that disbelieving person in power who has the ability, if they would just listen, to like save a bunch of lives. But because their own selfish interests, they they don't do it. And, you know, I'm not quite sure why the sheriff in this show is so disbelieving other than it's pretty unbelievable that somebody would be killed by a flock of birds. I mean, just the premise of that is is kind of strange. And there's not only a flock, but thousands of birds, as we see it when they're when they're leaving the house. They find uh, Taylor finally gets. uh, his mom, his sister, and Melanie into the little Austin Healy, or whatever that sports car is, and they're able. To, the scene of doing that was really suspenseful, where he has to get out it was, into the garage because they had and, to be super quiet yeah. and don't disturb the birds because they're sort of subdued at the moment. And they, a, a random bird would would uh, bite at his heels or whatever. But they, but they all get in the car, and uh, it's a mess. They're a and mess. then the last scene is them driving off, and there's some. Uh, they have the radio on, I think, and you can hear that this is happening in other towns around the area. The bird attacks have subsided for the time being. Bodega Bay seems to be the center, though there are reports of minor attacks on Sebastopol and a few on Santa Rosa. Bodega Bay has been cordoned off by roadblocks. Most of the townspeople have managed to get out, but there are still some isolated pockets of people. No decision has been arrived at yet as to what the next step will be, but there's been some discussion as to whether the military should go in. It appears that the bird attacks come in waves with long intervals between. The reason for this does not seem clear as yet. And it just kind of leaves you wondering, like, is this happening all over the world? Like, how is this going to end? What's what's really going on? Why are the birds attacking? There's all these unanswered questions, which is great. I love that. I had two things in the film that I wanted to ask you about. One, when the kids are coming down that hill and being chased by the birds, I was a little surprised that there weren't more parents or other people around. You know, because they're, they're not that far, that's part of town. And you'd think that somebody would have noticed this and would have come to their aid. But they're pretty much on their own. And then the second one is in the restaurant after that bird attack. Some of the some of the people in there, I had trouble believing. Like there was a man at the end of the bar that had been drinking a lot, and he kept saying, "It's the end of the world, the end of the world." 
And it, wouldn't other people from outside had seen some of this? And so it was a little difficult for me to accept that there wasn't more community involvement from people that had seen that taking place. I don't know. Did you yeah. feel that at all? I never noticed it in the I, times I'd seen it originally. No, I totally did, especially in the scene where they're, the kids are leaving the school, because I think that if they were really terrified of the birds attacking them, they put it, they should have just stayed in the school. And then I'm assuming there was a phone that they could have just started calling all the parents or maybe called somebody that ha- had a bus. Like, was there a bus in town that they could have loaded the kids up on? A school bus, I would and think, or the fire department. A school bus could've... or something, right? And and so yeah. that was... But I'm wondering if that wasn't a deliberate decision to make the whole town feel more deserted and isolated. Um and so, yeah, it, 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 I think it did detract a little bit from sort of the believability of it, although I think it may have been a decision to do it that way. Oh, I, yeah, but with, I with Mr. Hitchcock, I'm sure that it was. And there was so much disbelief in that restaurant. Uh, yeah, it was hard. But, but again, like you say, who's going to believe that a bunch of birds attack people? Well, it'd be hard. The first thing, when I first thought about doing this movie, I thought, well, this is sort of like a movie where the environment turns on humanity. And and Day of the Triffids came to, came yep. to mind as another example yep. of that. And, and also Jaws, actually, I think, is sort of in that genre. Yep. That's a whole theme of, yep. Totally. And if you think about sort of modern day, what's going on in the world, and you, you think about how many people don't believe in, say, climate change. And and, and so, to me, the fact that the, the people in the in the little cafe there didn't believe was kind of like spot on. I think that's probably what would happen is you would have a lot of people that just couldn't accept that this was happening because it's just so outside of their realm of experience or knowledge or uh, what they could think would happen. So that to me was fine. I, I But I do think that, yeah, some of the decisions they made on how to stay safe were not very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we even, I've even felt it a bit with the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. Uh, I was reading that if everybody was wearing face masks and doing the social distancing, they could drop the uh, number of uh, infections and all down substantially. But a lot of people resist even wearing the masks. They don't. They don't see the need for doing that. So it it does reoccur. It's all all through our lives. But well, and and I think it, it, again, it'll it'll come up in Jaws. It'll it'll, it'll be like a theme. Yes, in Jaws. It's even yeah. stronger. Sort yeah. of this disbelieving. <laughs> like yeah, I just it's this can't be real. You know. So yeah. Anyway, what what do you what do you give this? I, movie? I give the film a nine. I would have gone with a ten, but for the things I was just talking about that left me wondering why weren't, why weren't more of the community involved. So I, I'm just a step off of our top top rating. Yeah, I was going to give it a nine as well for similar reasons. There's just a few things in there where, um, yeah, it was just kind of weird. <laughs> but not in, not, in a, not, in a, not in a good sort of supports the story kind of weird way. Uh, but still really, really fun movie to watch. It's a fun movie, and I, I found the name of the two dogs that Hitchcock walks out of the store with. Jeffrey and Stanley. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's perfect. So, yeah, it was a good movie. And next up, we're going to watch uh, and, re- and review Duel. No, uh, Jaws. I'm sorry. Jaws. 
Yeah, Jaws. So that's uh, up next, and then <clears throat> then Duel. Yeah, then I think we're gonna do Duel, and then after that, it's um, the Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Oh yeah, right. And then we yeah we have our guest. We have our guest coming on board. Okay. Arthur Schoolco, our Tier 4 patron, is going to join us for our review of The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. And that'll be coming out in July. And uh, that's what's coming up. So, everybody, thanks for joining us. Uh, stay safe. Take care. Coming to you from uh, North Bend, where fall has arrived in June, it feels like. Uh, this is Matt Johnson. And uh, Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, wishing everyone happy movie watching. Thank <laughs> you.